So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And uh, we will be starting in verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Do you want to be shown the foolish person that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That may cause some of you to struggle. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out to one another, or sent them out rather another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and God, the passage that we have before us, God, to me, is convicting. God, at times it can be confusing. And God, I come before you right now, and God, I confess that I've had a busy day. And there have been many parts of my day where I've depended on me and not on you. God, there have been parts of my day where I functioned in my own strength instead of functioning in your strength. God, things that I thought I could do on my own. And God, I know that in this room there are probably a lot of people who have come here and they've had busy days and distractions. And God, I pray that in this moment, God, you would remove those. And God, I pray that in this moment, God, your spirit would fall on this place and God, you would use this passage and God, you would allow me to speak and communicate clearly the things that you have shown me and taught me over many years in this passage and even in studying it this week. God, I pray that as James says in chapter one, God, that this passage would seek to push us to be doers of the word and not simply hearers. God, that we would not be people who are in love with the idea of Jesus, but actually in love with Jesus, and God, that it shows in our life. Father, I pray for this group of young adults, God, people who can be used to change not only this ministry, not only this church, not only this city, this state, but God, to change the world around us. God, I pray that you would infect them with your spirit. Let them see and know your love and share it with everyone that they meet and everyone that they see. God, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I was in high school, I was a national champion Bible quizzer. You probably didn't think those four words could go together. 
national champion. See, I left the pause there on purpose because I thought maybe you would start to add in what you thought it would be, and it was much, very much a letdown, I'm assuming, when I said Bible quizzer. You probably didn't even know something like that exists. I would love to know, is there anybody in here who actually did know that Bible quizzing was a thing you could be a national champion at? Anyone? Well, I stand before you, the first you have met. And this is a real thing. This is a real thing that I grew up in a a fairly fundamental conservative church. And when I was in high school, it was presented to me that this was a good thing to do, something that I should do. It was run by the IFCA, the Independent Fundamentalist Churches of America. And you can imagine what type of a group of people those were. I don't know if Paul has shared his experiences, but he and I have similar church background experiences that would come from a very conservative environment, and the people that I hung around were even more conservative than the the church that I went to. And in the IFCA Bible quizzing, uh, we would get together and memorize pieces of scripture, and when I was 16 years old, I memorized the book of, or we memorized the book of 1 Timothy in the King James Version, because that was the only holy version, of course. And uh, we actually, in game show fashion, would get together and quiz other churches four on four with full on like buzzer things, you know, where you click them and the light goes on and the whole deal, answering questions about 1 Timothy and quoting verses about 1 Timothy. Now, before I digress too much, and I have to admit, and it's totally fine for you two as well, that when I look back at those times in my life, I do chuckle. It seems a little bit ridiculous, and that's okay. But I would be remiss if I didn't say that it is to my shame that I look back on that. And even though it was ridiculous that we were competing in our Bible knowledge like a game show, it was the time in my life where I committed to the memorization of God's word more than any other time in my life. So I don't, it would, it would, I would leave you with the wrong impression if I didn't tell you that I really appreciate that about it, that I still recall verses from 1 Timothy all the time. So there was a silver lining to this ridiculous thing called Bible quizzing. The reason that I bring that up is to describe to you some culture changes, some church history. See, when I grew up, we were coming kind of to the end of an era in the American church where conservatism and fundamentalism was at its height. What that means is that a lot of churches, in fact, most churches in America would have been of the ilk or the type of church where the women wore skirts because they weren't going to wear pants or you didn't wear slacks as a woman. You wore a skirt. You didn't play cards because card games were the devil and you certainly didn't go to the movie theater. You didn't smoke, you didn't chew, and you didn't hang out with people who do, right? This was the prominent church in America. The word that was used oftentimes or that we would use is legalism. It was very legalistic. It was like, okay, if you want to please God, if you want to you know, earn his favor, you need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to do this and this and this and this. And yeah, we may not be able to find these things specifically in the Bible, but we found principles that lead us to these things. And so therefore, rock and roll music is wrong. Therefore, dancing is wrong. Therefore, girls wearing pants is wrong. Therefore, all this stuff is wrong. And if you want to please God, if you want to be a part of our church, if you want to be a part of our community, you need to abide by these rules. To the point that I once, when I was a kid, went to a Bill Gothard um, seminar. I would be amazed. Anybody ever hear of Bill Gothard before? Seriously. Sweet. 
Uh, so I went to a Bill Gothard seminar who was kind of a, a bastion of legalism and telling you all the things that were wrong that were not necessarily in the Bible, but were wrong anyway. And he had this wonderful device that he would bring to his seminars. It was this plexiglass box. I don't remember how it even worked, but it had like a hammer in it, and it was the tape crusher. And you were to bring all of your secular music. I'm dating myself now. Yes, I had tapes when I was growing up. I understand, but you may not know what that is. It went into this device called a tape player, and it played music. Not very good music, but it played music nonetheless. Um, And you would bring your secular music, your rock and roll music, up to the front to smash those tapes in the plexiglass box. Yeah, sweet, huh? And so I remember going home. How many of you have heard of Petra? This is like a walk down memory lane. I did not plan to go this far. Petra was a Christian group, but they were, they were rock and roll, right? Michael W. Smith was a Christian artist, but he was like rock and roll. I remember being like 12 or 13 years old. This guy got me. This guy got me. I felt conviction. I thought I needed to please God with this stuff. I went home and I smashed my Petra and my Michael W. Smith. Yeah, what an idiot. This is what the church looked like, okay? Now, fast forward to to where we are. This is what culture tends to do within America and within church. This is what culture tends to do. We tend to go, okay, that was bad. That was ridiculous. Legalism is wrong. We don't want to be under the yoke or the, the burden of legalism, so boom, whoosh. We swing the pendulum to the other way. Now, along the way, we investigate and get great core truth and great core doctrine and great things that the church as a whole in general was missing. Understand me, I'm not saying that no churches in the 50s and 60s and 70s were good. Certainly there were churches preaching the gospel. Certainly there were churches preaching grace. I'm just describing the general church in America in that era. And the pendulum has swung. And now the popular church in America is the church that preaches grace above anything else. Now, is grace and grace alone good? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And maybe for some of you, if you're new to church or you're new to a group like this, you hear the word church and you think of what I just described, like the legalistic people who think everything is bad and everything is wrong and God is mad at us and we have to do all... Maybe that's your picture of church. And when I talk about swinging the pendulum to grace, you're kind of like... What does that mean? And I'm looking around the room and I see a lot of you who are, you know exactly what that means. Here's what it means, that along the swing of the pendulum, we caught the real gospel. We caught the actual gospel truth. And that the truth is this. God is holy. He's perfect. And so let me go over this quickly with you. God is holy. He is perfect. We are sinful. That's a problem. There's a separation between us and God. So what is God to do? Most religions around the world tell you that this is what God did. God said, I'm mad at you. Do a bunch of things to make me less mad at you, and maybe I will accept you. That's religion. That's what it says. The Bible says that is not true. The Bible says there's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. So God... Because he is gracious and loving and merciful, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. It is grace. It is not by not playing cards. It is not by not wearing slacks and wearing a skirt. It's not by doing all those things that I earn my way to God. None of that would matter. None of that can matter. None of that can earn me a relationship with God. God is the only one who can do it. The Bible says salvation, a relationship with God, it belongs to him. 
and he freely gives it to us, not based on anything that we did. We don't deserve it at all, and God gives it anyway. That's grace. But now that that pendulum has swung, and churches are like, legalism bad, grace good. What's happened, an interesting phenomenon has happened in the church. That somehow in that pendulum swing, grace, God's love and unmerited favor for us in giving us what we do not deserve, grace has somehow ended up on this side of the spectrum and works, good works, deeds have ended up on this side of the spectrum. And it looks like they're almost on opposite sides. Like, oh yeah, religion, that's what values works. Those bad religions that think that God is mad at us and we have to do works. No, 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 no. We are biblical Christians. We understand that works are worthless. It's by God's grace and God's grace alone that we are saved. And tonight in this passage in James, James is going to try and narrow our view and bring us back to a right view of what the Bible has called for all along. Instead of placing grace over here like, oh, so awesome, and it is, it is so awesome that the church has now come to an understanding and many places in the church that understanding the radical love and mercy and grace of God that is the true gospel, that is so awesome. But if we have left works by the wayside, attributing them to something that that the devil pushes on us to try and press us into religion, then we don't have the full picture. We don't see it. And so if we're going to keep it real and we're going to investigate James, he's going to go, listen, some people in the church and sometimes our understanding and sometimes our pendulum swing towards grace has pressed us to a place where it looks like this, works over here, grace over here. James wants to bring them back to the middle and have us recognize that grace and works go hand in hand or neither one of them is real. I can't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and not have it affect and radically transform my life. I can't have that. And so in this passage, we're gonna see what a dead faith looks like and we're gonna see what a living faith looks like. So I read the passage and we're just gonna kind of work our way through it, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says... I have faith, but he does not have works. Can that faith save him? The assumption there that the answer to that question would be no. No, that faith cannot save him. If he says, I have faith, I proclaim a belief in Jesus, but I have no works. In fact, a commentary I was reading basically said that verses 14 through 20 talk about what it looks like to have a dead faith. And verses 21 through 26 talk about what it looks like to have a living faith. And in verses 14 through 20, we basically see three descriptions or three indicators of a dead faith. That if as we go through them, you would look at them and go, okay, if any one of these things rings true in my heart, I really need to examine. Do I know Jesus? Do I actually have a saving faith in him? And so here's the first thing. In verse 14, the first descriptor of a dead faith would be an empty confession. An empty confession. That means that I confess with my mouth, but there's nothing behind it. That's why he's saying, if you say, hey, I've got faith, and, but you don't have any works, can that faith save him? And the assumption is no. 
It means that just what I said before, faith has to be followed and accompanied by works. They are two sides of the same coin. And it's an empty or worthless confession for me to say, oh yeah, I love Jesus, I'm totally into Jesus, I'm all about it, and yet there's nothing to follow it up. And so we see that often in our world, an empty confession. A confession that says, I love Christ, but then there's nothing behind it. And now, what might that look like? The next thing that we see in verses 15 through 17 is this. So number one, empty confession. Number two, a false compassion. A false compassion. Verses 15 through 17 gives us this wonderful illustration. I love the fact that in this, in verses 14 through 20 that describe a dead faith, we get illustrations that he gives us. And in verses 21 through 26, we also get examples and illustrations. So, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith... By itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here's what he's saying. What good would it do? I mean, we live in Gilbert, Arizona. Every time you pull off the freeway, it seems like there's someone there who is begging for money and saying that they're in need of food. And we're not going to get into the conversation of what do you do practically in that situation, but you can identify with what he's talking about. I'm fully aware that now we live in an age, a very, very sad age, where people hustle and swindle to make a living, and it's really hard to tell the difference, right? But I would encourage you this. It's not your job to figure out what a person is doing. It's your job to follow the spirit of God that's inside you. And when he says to move, when he says to give, you move and you give. But in this, you see someone who's in need, and he's basically saying, how good would it be for you to go, man, I really wish you well. Well, have a good day. And you walk away. Think about recounting that to your friends. Think about recounting a story to your friends that doesn't have this type of conclusion. So you recount this story to your friends. Oh, yeah, I was walking down on Mill the other day, and, man, I saw this guy. He looked rough. He looked like he had been out on the streets for years. I mean, the full-on leathery skin, unshaved. He was skinny. He looked super hungry. And I stopped, and he said, man, I haven't eaten in a week. And I knew he was telling the truth. He hadn't eaten in a week. And I said to him, brother, I really hope you get some food. Well, have a good day. Would you be proud of that? Would you tell your friends about that? Would you be like, yeah, I really wished him well. I did a good job on that one, didn't I? No. What does he need? He needs food, and it's worthless to wish him well and not help him with what he needs. And what he's saying is that that's like having faith without works. That's like saying, no, 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 I'm saved by grace. I'm not worried about works. Works are for religion. Works are for when you think God's mad at you. And I know God's not mad at me. He accepts me the way that I am. No. It's ridiculous to try and proclaim a love for Christ and then not have that affect you to the point that you act like Jesus. Not speak like Jesus, you act like Jesus. So you have a false compassion. Here's what it looks like in our world. It looks like people, and this is on you, right? This is on you to evaluate, is this true of your life? I don't know this, but the Spirit does, and so do you. When you talk about love, and you talk about hurting for the poor, and you talk about what you want to do, but you don't do anything, 
You're way better at talking the compassion game than living the compassion game. And I'm telling you, that's all over the church. I love to talk about it. I love to feel. Oh, but doing that, man, that, that, would, that would cramp my style. Like actually getting out there and serving someone, actually getting out there and giving to someone, actually giving out there and giving my time. Like I got other things to do. I'll have a great conversation with you about how much I love the poor, but go and serve them? I'll have a great conversation with you about how ministries need to get started and people need to get cared for. But when the rubber hits the road and you go, well, let's go do something. Well, you know, I got this, I got that. A false compassion. A false compassion accompanies a dead faith. And then lastly, the third thing in verses 18 through 20 is a shallow conviction. Verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. This one has always convicted me. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Understand this. The demons believe the gospel. You realize that? How many times have you thought or said, if you consider yourself a Christian, that becoming a Christian means simply that I believe the gospel? That's not it. The demons believe the gospel. And it even says they shudder. It even says like they believe it like kind of to their core. But they have no works. It does not change their life. Their allegiance is still to self and not to Christ. They understand the truth. They know the truth. They could say that in a sense they have some type of faith, but it is not accompanied by any life change. It's not accompanied by an allegiance to Christ instead of self. Therefore, it is worthless. Shallow conviction. Conviction that doesn't run deep enough. Conviction that says, yeah, I love the concept of Jesus. I love the idea of Jesus, but I don't really want to follow his life. I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to be really crucified with him. I just want to follow after his moral teachings because I think he was a really cool guy. That's not faith that is deep enough to produce works, and that is not faith that saves. So let's contrast that with a living faith. In verses 21 through 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, Martin Luther, who was an incredible um, theologian and reformer, many of you, I'm sure, Martin Luther is a, a character in world history, whether you've ever been around the church or not. The Catholic Church back in the 1500s was definitely pushing a works-based religion. God is mad at you. You need to do a bunch of works. And you also need to give a bunch of money to the church in order for God not to be mad at you and you to have the possibility of getting to heaven. That was their version of the gospel, a false gospel, a terrible gospel, a damning gospel. And Martin Luther, reading the book of Romans, realized that grace... That faith alone in Jesus, grace alone, was all that salvation was. And you might have heard of the 95 theses that he nailed to the door of the church. 
Martin Luther had a really hard time with this verse because he had worked so hard to get away from works. He had worked so hard to get out from the the bullying of the Catholic church that said you have to have all these works because God is mad at you. He worked so hard risking his life to go, it is by grace alone. There's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. It's by God's grace alone. So when he reads this verse, he goes, James, what are you doing? You're trying to bring works back into it? Like that's what justifies us? No, no, no. We're justified before God by his grace alone. And how do we reconcile that? I know some of you, you've been around the church a long time. You're in love with the grace of God. You've studied the gospel. You understand what it is. And so you read this and you go, I don't, how do I, how do we deal with this? What does this mean to have a living faith that produces works? And and James even going as far to say, you're justified. Here's what I want you to understand and what we must understand. In the Bible, we can get caught up with words that are used in a spiritual sense and not give them the credit for the general sense that they are used. The word justify has a generic Webster's Dictionary meaning, and we use it in our normal English language. It also has a theological meaning. There are two ways to understand and two ways to use the word justify. There's one that means like acquittal, literally the removal of guilt, You are in a position of guilt and condemnation, and you are justified. Now you are acquitted of the crime. You are removed from the position of guilt and put to a position of innocence. When Paul uses the term justification, and we think of the term justification in the church, that is the term. Jesus, by dying on the cross, gave us justification. He justified us before Christ by removing our sin and giving us the righteousness of Christ. And we stand clear, free, innocent before God. That is an amazing truth. And it is by that alone that we are saved positionally in Christ. We are placed into a position where we are innocent before God. But justify also means this, to show, to give proof of, to reconcile. So you're in a company and you make a purchase and your boss comes to you and says, hey, why did you spend that much money on that? Justify that to me. Prove to me that that was the right choice. Prove to me that that was right. Show me how that works. And what James is saying here is listen, Faith and works are two sides of the same coin, and you cannot have one without the other. In fact, you are justified before God by grace alone through faith. But that faith is not justified. You are not justified in saying you have faith. You are not giving any proof of even beginning to talk about faith unless it is accompanied by works and obedience to Christ. And if you think about that, right, we have all grown up, or well, I don't know that, so I, I want to say that. I was going to say we've all grown up in America, but I don't know that for sure. Most of us have grown up in America. We're in this post-enlightenment Western world where everything to us is ma- mathematical. That's not the way the Bible is written. We want to do math and go, okay, we're justified by grace alone, so here's the math equation. I didn't do anything. I can't do anything. There's nothing that I need to do, and we say all these things because it's grace alone. That's not the point of this passage, and that's not the point of the Bible. The Bible is saying, and James is saying, how can you even talk about faith if you don't have works? How can you claim a justification by faith if that, work, if that faith is not justified by your works? 
These two things go in unison. And it's ridiculous for us. Listen to this. It is ridiculous for us to feel confident in our position in Christ. It's ridiculous for us to feel good about our salvation because we are leaning on grace if there is nothing going on in our life that would justify that faith. Do you understand what he's saying? Now, and for me, man, I, I read that and it is a, like a daily conviction to me. Like my life needs to line up. It's not because I'm earning anything. It's because I'm overwhelmed by the love of Jesus Christ. It's because I'm overwhelmed by what he did for me on the cross. And so we know the story of Abraham. He offers up his son Isaac and willing to sacrifice his only son, death. His actions, his works, his obedience to God prove his faith. And then further with this last illustration, Rahab the prostitute in verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. He's saying, was her faith not proved by what she did? And had she not done that, could she have claimed and would she have had any faith at all? The story of Rahab is a great one. It's a super contrast to Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Israelites in this book. James was written to the Jewish people was written to the 12 tribes that were scattered among the nations. This was written to the Jews, and they would know Abraham. He was their, like, hero. He was the father of the Israelites. He was a Jew among Jews, God's chosen people. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute, the worst of the worst. It's very interesting that we get two illustrations. One of this, hey, this is some guy you can identify, and here's another one that you may not expect, but her faith was proven by what she did. Spies came in over the wall into the city of Jericho because they were going to conquer the city of Jericho by God's call, by God's command. And the king of Jericho heard that those spies were in the city and he was going door to door with his soldiers seeking to kill those spies. Rahab hid the spies because she feared the Lord, because she knew that God had given Jericho to the Israelites and said, I'm on God's side. I believe in God. I have faith to this point that I'm gonna hide you and I know if these guards find you, they're not gonna kill you. They're gonna kill me. So it's interesting too that faith means that our works cost us something it, it means that there's like a personal investment it, it means that loving jesus is not always easy it, it means that sometimes there's a cost associated to it and so we see this connection to works we see or faith and works I was thinking about this and I remembered this thing that I read in a commentary and I wanted to read it to you when we talk about what it means to, to love somebody. It's interesting that there's personal cost, there's personal love, and, and I feel like we live in a culture that's been desensitized to what true faith and works looks like. And I was talking about, and I meant to read this a little bit earlier as an illustration when I was talking about the idea of false compassion that we love to talk a good game, but we don't love to like act and actually do. We love to talk about what we love, but we don't actually like to like display what we love and do things. And I, I, I want you to know I'm not condemning anybody in here in particular. I'm just saying in general. I feel that conviction in my own heart. I hear wonderful things about things that are going on in this group, but I know that it's not true of every heart in here. 
We love to talk about things we don't, and we are desensitized as a culture. The story is told of a European queen several centuries ago who left her coachman, so the person driving her carriage, sitting outside during the winter while she attended the theater. The drama in the theater was so heart-wrenching that the queen sobbed throughout the entire performance. But when she returned to her carriage, she discovered that the coachman had frozen to death. She did not shed a tear. She was deeply moved by a fictional tragedy, but completely untouched by a real one with which she was directly involved and for which she was even directly responsible. She was just annoyed that she was going to have to wait to get home. And you go, that's terrible. How could she ever do that? How could she ever feel that way? He goes on to say this, and I think he says it really, really well. It is amazing that so many people can become emotionally involved in a movie, a play, a popular song, or a TV program, weeping over tragedies, becoming incensed at wrongs, and injustice, and yet show no concern or compassion for the plight of a neighbor or acquaintance who is in real need. In our artificial, self-centered world, fantasy often, listen to this, fantasy often becomes more meaningful than reality. Fantasy often becomes more meaningful. Man, that kind of hit me. And I mean this even personally. How easy is it to get caught up in a fictional story that brings a tear to your eye? How easy is it to get caught up in a fictional story that makes you angry that that character did that or the story ended that way or the plot ended that way? We binge watch a Netflix series and we talk it, we come and we are like incensed about what just happened in this show. But yet, there are tragedies, real life tragedies going on all over, all around us in the world. Does it hit us the same way? Does it hit us as hard? If the work of the Spirit of Christ is not coming out of me, his love, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, then do I have a right to claim faith in him? If obedience to his word is not a priority of mine, do I have a right to call myself his son, his daughter? That's the question that James is begging here. That's the tension that he's dealing with in this church and with these people that he's calling attention to. And because that's what he's doing, to me, it feels like that's my responsibility tonight. I need to call attention to that. That faith justifies us before Christ, and that faith is a gift from Christ. But that faith is justified by works. They, They have to go together. We have no example, none, No example in scripture of anybody whose life was changed by Christ who did not have a radical transformation and desire to love him and live for him in incredible ways. And so to break this down and and make it real, or maybe a little bit more real for for you guys, um, and we're running short on time, I, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what the thing that, that would bring conviction for you is when, it, when we talk about obedience and living the love and compassion of Jesus Christ in your life. But this is, this is real stuff. Like, grace is not there so that I can live a life on the edge of looking like Jesus and still get into heaven. Grace is not there so that I can turn 18, I can turn 21, and I can indulge in all sorts of freedoms and things that America tells you are the greatest things in the world that don't look like Jesus but still feel like, no, 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 I'm good, we're cool. Jesus died on the cross for me. We're good, we're cool. We're not cool. 
Jesus died a gruesome, tragic, and horrible death for my sin, for your sin. It's not cool. And he didn't do that so that you could be freed from the bondage of sin only to return to it. He didn't do that so that you could be freed from the bondage of sin so that you could go and live like the rest of the world and know that you would still get to heaven. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross to free you from sin so that you could go back to it without penalty. Jesus Christ died on the cross to free, free you from sin and give you righteousness, which means Jesus Christ died on the cross to free you to good works. To free you to good works. The famous verse that we go to all the time for grace alone through faith is Ephesians chapter two, eight and nine. If you wanna turn there, I, let, let's turn there real quick. We'll be done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now let's remember grace is unmerited favor. It's someone walking up to you on the street and give you a $100 bill or giving you $1,000 and saying, hey, I just felt like giving this to you. No reason you didn't earn this. Grace. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works that no one may boast. So we see it's grace alone, no doubt about it. But read verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All over the Bible, faith is attached to works. Grace and the overwhelming truth of the gospel should produce in us such a love and an overwhelming gratitude towards Christ, that we don't view our life as an opportunity to get close to sin knowing that grace will cover the times that we bump over the other side. We look at our life and view our life as an opportunity to represent him and represent his love and obey him and look different to the world around us. That's what we're called to do. So like I said before, I'm gonna give you a, a couple minutes and the, the guys are gonna come back and we're gonna have a time to kind of respond. But I wanna give you a couple minutes just to evaluate and think. Maybe you're in this room and, and you hear about all this and you're like, oh, wow, okay, like this is somewhat new to me in a relationship with Christ and you've been living a life that was you know, trying to do good but you weren't sure exactly what you were doing and maybe you're hearing like, well, I'm just kind of getting into Jesus. I want to invite you. If you want to know more about Christ, there's going to be people up here afterwards who would love to talk, talk to you. If you're someone in this room who would consider yourself a Christian, I would just call you to consider what James is saying. Is my faith accompanied by works? And I don't want works to be a generic word. I don't want it to be like, am I a good person? Is my faith accompanied by an intense desire to obey God that brings me to obedience? Is my faith, my belief in Christ, accompanied by a desire for holiness that affects my life, like for real? 
We talked about Netflix and losing yourself in a story. Does it affect your choices on Netflix? Does your faith in Christ affect your choices on Netflix? Does it affect your entertainment? Does it affect the movies you watch, the movies you'll own? Does it affect the music you'll listen to? When you find yourself listening to something and you're like, wow, this guy is like celebrating sin. Again, now I want to be careful here. I'm not trying to be legalistic. We don't need these things in order to impress God. We're not trying to impress God, but know this. When we don't obey and we don't get God's best for us, it does grieve him. It does make him sad. It does disappoint him as a father who wants what's best for us. It damages our testimony. So just think about your faith. Think about your belief in Christ and ask yourself the question. Do works accompany my faith? Does obedience accompany my faith? And is there some place in my life right now where it's not and I need to confess it? And I need to confess it and I need to give it back to God and I need to recommit to not just believing in him and loving his grace, but actually living for him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and thank you for everything that you do for us. God, I so... um, am convicted by this passage and thankful for this passage. God, we love you. We pray this in your name.